Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. At times this year, it has felt like the government has been operating with little or no opposition. Under such circumstances, who holds the Prime Minister to account? Well, enter stage left my guest this week. His name is George Abuthnot. He is a multi-award-winning investigative journalist and the deputy editor of the Insight team at the Sunday Times. He's also the co-author of a new book, Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with the coronavirus. In this episode, we discuss the book and the investigations that underpin it. We also discuss how he got into journalism and some of the stories he's covered throughout his career. We go on to discuss the threats to his industry, namely from social media, and we touch on the platform versus content debate. Talking to George made me think how important it is to have good, old-fashioned investigative journalists, particularly if we are indeed in this post-truth world dominated by social media platforms. I really hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. George Bathnot, welcome to the podcast. George, how did you start your career? I did economics at university, so I thought I'd go into the city. Um, but I did some journalism at, at university, at uh, Durham University, and, and really enjoyed it. I, so I just decided I'd, I'd give it a shot against everyone's advice because it was so, so poorly paid and relatively competitive thing. Mm-hmm. But So I did a master's at uh, City University in investigative journalism, mainly because I it was the only course that offered both print and broadcast training and I didn't wasn't sure which one I'd want to go into although my friends all said that I had a face for radio voice for print which wasn't particularly encouraging but I um managed to get a job on the mail on Sunday um out of City University because it was Sunday paper was kind of more long-term journalism and encouraged more kind of investigative style work and I just loved being a kind of detective and trying to get under the skin of stories and uh, particularly when they were public interest and you felt like you were going to uncover something worthwhile. Um, I was there for three years and I joined the Sunday Times in 2013 and I've been doing investigative work there uh, for the last uh, seven years. Mm -hmm. And take me back to the mail on Sunday. What what were the kind of stories that you were covering and did you specialise at that stage? No, I I was a kind of general news reporter right at the start of my career and so I was kind of like a almost like a dog's body. I, I just do whatever I was put on. Um, and it varied, you know, s- sometimes it was covering, um, I'm not sure you may remember the, the honeymoon murder in uh, South Africa, uh, where there was a lady called Annie, Annie Dewani, um, Dewani yeah. was murdered in a um, in one of the townships around there. And uh, so I went to South Africa, Cape Town to cover that, and also to Sweden to meet her family. And there was another schoolboy who was killed by a polar bear so it was it was a real kind of, uh, but then also there was some kind of at times there was also coming kind of more kind of celebrity stories which I found um, you know I wasn't I, <laughs> I struggled to motivate myself. You're not a keen follower of celebrities. I was I wasn't, and um, so I, I just found myself doing the the kind of public interest work much more diligently, and so it kind of then naturally after a while they sort of putting me on those stories rather than the other ones, and so luckily it was it was less awkward. Quite early on in your career, you had exposure to bereavement stories. I mean, how did you find that kind of uh, dealing with the families so early on in your career? That's one of the toughest, really one of the t- toughest parts of the job, actually, because before I joined the Mellow Sunday, I had a 
uh, on the mail trainee scheme, I had a stint at the Glasgow Herald um, for about 10 months. And, you know, there were quite a few murder stories in Glasgow. And so you are sent to do what they what they sort of callously call a, a death knock, uh, which is where you have to go and see if the family families of the victims will, will speak. And so, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of horrifying. When you're a young journalist and you're asked to do that for the first time, it's, kind of, it's absolutely horrifying. Do you have a sort of set piece? Do you have a, a sort of patter that you, you roll out? Yeah, well, the way, I mean, the way to look at it is that, is to say to them, you know, would, would you like to pay a tribute to your loved one? And it's amazing actually how many families, you know, would, despite the trauma they've gone through, are keen to, you know, say something nice about their, their relative. And um, so that, that's, what, that's what you always start with. And then, and then afterwards, you, you know, you see if they, want to, they would like to talk further, you know, about the circumstances. But often, typically, you know, it's just too much for them. And, um, and the, the, the key is just, it's just to be incredibly respectful. I mean, there are times, obviously, when you, you, you turn up on the doorstep and you get shouted at and told to sod off, uh, quite rightly. <laughs> and so you do. Um, but it's it's incredibly difficult. But you just have to be as, as sympathetic as you can. Hmm. And you said at the start that you know you made the decision not to go into the city. You decided to go into journalism, not as well paid. Um, you then, uh, in the second bit of your career, made the decision to go into move away from the news desk and into investigative journalism. Now, the question is that was at a time when papers, most of the broadsheet papers, were cutting their investigative journalists desks now the first question is why do you think so many papers have cut the desks and then secondly what attracted you to investigative journalism at a time when it was being cut you're taking the hard road here yeah so i mean the reason that papers have been have been i mean they've just been cutting their news teams across the board investigative journalism is quite expensive and you get fewer stories out of your journalists and so it's you know, it's and it's a risky business because you know journalists can take a long time working on a story and then suddenly realise that actually there's not much there, and they've you know if you paid their salary and they haven't produced <laughs> produced anything. So, um, but the upside to it is that if they, if they can dig out a significant story, then it then you know it, it'll make a splash in your front page, hopefully be covered across the other media, and it raises the profile of your of your paper and hopefully drives new readers to your platform. So, it's there is a kind of risk reward ratio there. The reason I went in, I, I went into it is purely because it was what I was enjoyed doing most, and um, I wasn't particularly good at economics, but you know I may have been able to get a job in the city. So having forsaken that, you know that that big salary, potentially big salary, I wanted. To, you know the reason I'd, I'd gone into journalism was because I was passionate about it, and investor journalism was the thing I was most passionate about. And so I just felt like I just I should just just follow that path. And I mean I think I, was, I benefited from the fact that because they were laying off. They're often more expensive, older journalists. Um, they were kind of happier to employ cheaper, younger people in in the same roles, and so it, it potentially gave me an opportunity earlier in my career than I might have if I'd if I'd been around thirty years before. So I kind of rode that that advantage. But obviously, that flipped when it, as I, now I'm getting older. That flips round. As you know, you start to worry that they might get someone cheaper because you, you gradually get more expensive, and so gradually they get someone cheaper to replace me and younger. But but yeah, that was my path into it. Mm-hmm. And how do you think journalism has changed as a consequence of the much publicised Leveson inquiry? And specifically, how has your role changed? And um, you know, we working in, in financial services, 
are facing extraordinary compliance costs. It's a similar thing happening in journalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I started my career 20, so 2009, 2010, so just as Leveson was kind of starting. And um, I certainly think it's been a big force for good in that I know that before I started in the sort of mid-2000s, early 2000s, there was you know, a lot of pressure on journalists to get stories. And, and, and this, that was ramped up because some journalists were using dodgy means to, to secure them. And that then put pressure on their, their rivals because their, their editors were saying, well, why haven't you got the story that that bloke's got? And, you, and they might have had a suspicion that, you know, that bloke was using phone hacking or some other method. But because they weren't being called to account for it or punished for it, then that, the journalists who were using the dodgy methods were actually, you know, winning out, winning out of that period. So the great thing about Lever when you know being in my career was that there was a huge I mean the, the priority really had switched from getting the story mm. to you know, let's first make sure that we're doing this right. And then if we can get the story by doing it right, then great. But if we can't do get the story without doing it right, then we won't do it. And that was really kind of helpful culture to come into because um Flipping it the other way around is, is obviously puts puts people in very difficult positions. And Leveson was was a was a headwind or, or something that had to be mitigated. How do you assess the risks of social media on the industry? Um, well, social media has obviously has driven a lot of people away from mainstream media, and you know people. So you know politicians can can speak directly to the public without having to go through newspapers or or telly. So it's, it's, it's caused a financial, given us a financial hit in terms of both readership but also advertising because so much of the advertising revenues are now going directly to you know, Facebook and Google. But I think also that there is now starting to be a kind of um, rebalancing in that I think people are now find, you know, know that it's often the, the material that they're reading on social media is, is often uh, distorted or uh, untrue. and I think certainly leaders like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, who have a kind of pretty loose relationship with the truth, has benefited trusted media organisations who employ invested journalists to try and uncover the truth and and provide trusted content. And I know, I know the New York Times, for example, had a huge surge in subscriptions once Donald Trump became president because people were desperate to, to read the truth rather than just um, sort of soak up his, his bullshit. It's the truth with with a bias, yeah. I mean, there's no question that media organisations have a, a bias, left or right. Is the counter argument to the sort of social media versus uh, mainstream media argument that actually, you know, through social media, you hear it direct from the horse's mouth rather than through the sort of editorial crushing machine that may politicise news? I mean, I can genu- genuinely say that the Sunday Times, particularly on the Insight team, I've never experienced that during our investigations. The political slant, we never, never had any kind of pressure on us to slant a story. We've written it as we see it, and then it, it's been it's been edited, but typically edited for, as far as I can discern for space reasons rather than political slant. Do you think the Insight team at the Times is unique in that respect? I mean, I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I don't. The, you know, the political coverage. I don't, you know, I, I can't speak for it because I don't, I, I haven't been involved with it. But I, I think that um, 
we are very lucky that we do get to investigate stories for a, for a long period, and and we, we you know we often there are, there are our own ideas. To be fair, the, the paper did come out for pro Brexit before the the referendum, for example, and you know people have certainly deemed it to have been you know fairly supportive of Boris at times. But you know if you look at the stories that we've done in the in the last year and a half, you know we we broke the Jennifer Akuri story just before the general election last year, which by the evidence that uh, his mistress, Jennifer Akuri, who he'd been uh, having an affair with while he was a London mayor, had received hundreds of thousands of pounds, well, more than 100,000 pounds in um, public money from City Hall-linked organisations, and had also been given privileged access to his trade missions. Um, and that led to an investigation by the Independent Office for Police Conduct. So, And then obviously more recently, we've done our work on the pandemic, which has been highly critical of his of his handling and uh, we just we just released a book basically suggests that he was responsible for tens of thousands of deaths so i think it's quite it's quite hard to um it's pretty clear that we you know we, we've been able to to write mm-hmm. it as we see it well we'll come back to the book and we'll come back to the the stories um that you worked on last year earlier on in your time at the times what were the stories that you were you were sort of most passionate about and were proud that you put your name to I was very lucky when I first started to be able to spend two years doing a campaign on um, human trafficking in the UK. Uh, when I was at the Mail, I'd the first ever case of someone being trafficked to Britain to have their organs harvested um, had emerged. Um, the Salvation Army had, had taken the, the victim in. And um, I was sent down to the Salvation Army's offices to find out more about human trafficking. And they mentioned that there was an issue with Vietnamese women being trafficked to Britain to and become manicurists, and they were forced to work as um, painting nails for no money during the day, and then forced to work as prostitutes by night. And um, I spent about six months working on that story, which ended up in the Sunday Times magazine, and it gained quite a lot of tension. So the paper then asked me to do a do a campaign, which coincided actually with um, the modern slavery bill that Theresa May uh, was bringing in. Um, and she kindly wrote a piece praising the, the nail bar story. And so the work after that was then to try and show the areas that the modern slavery bill should be addressing. So we looked at Filipinos being forced to work in the fishing industry around the Scottish coast and also the um, England southern coast. We looked at the Eastern Europeans working in um, food factories supplying the supermarkets. Uh, many of them have been trafficked and uh, you know, basically pr- promised well-paid jobs in Britain, working in the in the in the on the farms and factories, but when they actually came here, they were threatened by the gangmasters who forced them to hand over their wages and issued threats against their families back at home if if if, if they didn't. So that was obviously a story very easy to be passionate about because because of the level of of suffering and harm that it, that it was causing. You must have feared for your safety at some stages, but covering stories like that, did you find yourself in quite sticky situations? I mean, you always kind of think that they'd make it so much worse for themselves, you know, the slave masters, if they were to, if they were to do anything to 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 the journalists who were writing about them. You know, suddenly they'd they'd turn a story that was, you know, in the middle pages of the Sunday Times to a you know huge front page story if <laughs> that was to happen. So you kind of just, I mean, obviously you know, you can't be sure that they're not clever enough to realise that, but. Um, I mean, it was, I had a few calls, phone calls um, after we did the Filipino 
fisherman story from what sounded like a sort of Scottish fisherman. It was quite threatening, but I never really took it seriously. There's nothing you can do, you know, you, just, you can be concerned about it or you can just go on with your life and um, and if it happens, it happens. Hmm. Let's wind forward to 2020 and your investigation into the government's response to the coronavirus. How did you first uncover the story? We were being asked in April last year, um, just at the height of the first wave, to take a look back at what um, Boris Johnson and the government had been doing in January and February and March to see how seriously they'd taken it, what, what preparations they'd made, etc. And we, we, what we found, we looked in detail, was absolutely astonishing. I mean, in early February, um, despite warnings from his own scientists that the coronavirus was more infectious than the Spanish flu, which had killed up to 100 million people during the First World War, um, yeah, Boris had dismissed it as, a, as an irrational panic. Um, he'd missed the first five COBRA meetings on the virus. And despite being on Westminster, four of them, I mean, just to give you an example, the first pre-COVID meeting in, in January, he was instead celebrating Chinese New Year, just a few metres away in, on the steps of Downing Street. Uh, on the next one, he'd uh, been instead holding a Facebook Live event where he'd been pontificating about Shakespeare, which he was writing a book about. On the next one, he'd posted a jokey video about whether asking whether Boris Johnson was for or against Brexit. And on the last one, Instead, he actually he was taking a call from the Chinese president. He wanted to thank him uh, that the British government had given hundreds of thousands of pieces of our PPE kit to China just a few weeks before our you know, doctors and nurses would start dying because we didn't have the right protective kit. How uncommon is it for a prime minister to, to miss so many uh, COBRA meetings? Absolutely unprecedented. We, we, we actually, after the government, tried to claim that, that, that this was completely normal. We did a study of um, all the COVID meetings since 2010, and we found 41 of them. 28 have been attended by the Prime Minister, and there were only three that had been missed by the Prime Minister when they were actually in Westminster. So, and, and, and of those three, Theresa May had actually chaired a National Security Council meeting uh, on the same issue that week, and the other one, David Cameron, was hosting Barack Obama on, on I think, the second ever US state visit. So they had they had good reason <laughs> not to be there. So to miss five in a row when on four of them he was actually in Westminster uh, was ex- absolutely extraordinary. We couldn't see any precedent for that at all. What was the government's response to the first, when you first published the allegations? Oh, they were uh, furious because uh, the story really kind of seemed to touch a nerve. I think people, when the lockdown was first brought in, it all rallied round, and there was kind of like a sort of almost like a sort of blitz spirit, you know, where, where everyone was being supportive of the government and each other. Um, but there was, I think, everyone was kind of questioning why are we so late to act compared to the rest of Europe? Um, yeah, we've been the last to lock down, even though we'd had the, the warning from Italy. So when our piece came out, which which you know, documented all these uh, all, all these things, I think people were just it, it provided the evidence that they'd suspected. <laughs> Uh, that, that we hadn't been doing things, you know, as, as quickly as we could, and it really touched the nerve. And so we, it, it was on uh, big on Andrew Marr that morning. And Michael Gove um, was um, being grilled by Marr, who and Gove admitted that Boris had missed the five COVID meetings and that we'd given away the PPE. And all that day on that Sunday, it really built. I think I think we did some audience research. We said that the story had reached twenty-two million people as it was covered 
on the 100 times across different broadcast media. So that evening, the government put out a 2,000-word blog trying to dampen down the story. And most of the cabinet ministers actually tweeted it out from their accounts. And when we went through the blog, it was, it was just full of um, kind of untruths, uh, misleading statements. I mean, just, just to give you an example, they, they quoted some experts in January trying to give the impression that experts hadn't been warning of how serious the virus was. But unfortunately, one of the experts was Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, who couldn't believe how they'd twisted his words in their statement. He actually described it as, as Kremlin-esque. And so it was, it was kind of typical of, of the government's approach during that period where they kind of claimed they were following the science and that they'd made the right decisions at the right time. But it was absolutely clear that they, that, that they hadn't. Do you think there's a, there's a style over substance argument here in, in the sense that, you know, this is how Boris Johnson and his administration deal with these things? And, and maybe if he wasn't present, he had his sort of infrastructure there that he was relying on to make that clear. You know, his, his style is very much chairman rather than CEO. Yeah, I mean, we, we discussed that with some of our Downing Street sources. Um, he just said that that was a massive problem with, with the virus because the most important thing to tackle in the coronavirus was, have, was to take swift and decisive action. And unfortunately, his, his approach is, is to take a step back, not, you know, not engage with the issue, hope that other people will, will solve it for him, and then only kind of seem, seemingly only take a decision if he's really forced into it. And unfortunately, that was catastrophic for the country. I mean, the best example of that is up to the 14th of March, there was, you know, Valence and Whitty did seem and they seem to be pushing this herd immunity approach, which had, mm-hmm. their own scientists had predicted would cause more than 200,000 deaths. But by the 14th of March, they had realised that that was a terrible mistake and that lockdown, they, they needed to bring in a lockdown. It was made clear to Boris on that day that there needed to be a lockdown um, as soon as possible. So from that moment, it's kind of on him. It's, it's up to him to make that decision. And he then took nine further days to make it. And unfortunately, the backdated and infection estimates show that on, on the 14th of March, there were around 200,000 infections in Britain. But by the 23rd of March, when he finally locked down, there was, that had skyrocketed to 1.5 million. And so that, his prevarication over those nine days, when everyone was urging him to lock down, is the single most important reason why we ended up with the worst death toll in Europe, but also the worst economic hit, because we then had to have a longer lockdown to bring the massively high infections back under control. Is there a danger though, George, that you may have written this book too early? And I, I say that because it, it takes us up to, to January of 2021. Since January 2021, the government have rolled out quite an effective uh, vaccination plan and uh, vaccinated over 30 million people um, and relative to our European counterparts are well ahead. Um, so do you think history will be kind to the government and their reaction when this information is taken into account? So on, on the time point of the book, um, you know, I, I actually in some ways wish, wish we got it out earlier. The greatest, one of the biggest mistakes was the government refusing to have any kind of inquiry in the, in the summer last year, which uh, would have forced them to learn the lessons of the late lockdown in that first wave. Because you know, when we started writing the book, we assumed that we'd only be writing about one late lockdown. We started writing it in June last year, but we ended up writing about three. The sage. I mean, the sage scientists we've spoken to just say, you know, to make that mistake once is bad enough, but to make it three times is absolutely unforgivable. 
you know, they were absolutely urging the government to bring in that, that lockdown circuit breaker in, in September. And uh, they were just incredulous that Sunak and Johnson failed to um, recognise that failing to do so would leave us once again in the worst of all worlds. Does the vaccine rollout? Hey, look, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, the government have done, done extremely well on it. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the damage has been done. We've got close to 150,000 people have lost their lives, and we're in the midst of one of the world's worst recessions, which we'll be paying for for decades. And being a few months ahead of the rest of Europe with our vaccine rollout is 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 not going to change that. This is a broader question on on our politics relative to politics of some of the more authoritarian states. Do you think that our politics just isn't particularly well set up to deal with the pandemic? And I say that because science has to be evidence based. And science is a series of arguments and counterarguments. Politics then have to use that science, balance it up against um, risks and opportunities, and create policy. And so the question is, are you maybe being too one-sided and taking just one person's point of view? Oh, no, I profoundly disagree with that. The scientists were clear on the 14th of March what needed to happen. And it, then Boris Johnson had the power to make that decision and shut, lock down the country, but he failed to do that. that that's on him. The second wave, it was even worse. The scientists, the sage scientists were absolutely unanimous that there should be a circuit breaker. Gove, Hancock, uh, the World Bank had actually done a um, study of all the economic mortality data across the world and published a paper called The Sooner the Better, saying the countries that locked down early have better outcomes in terms of lives and economy. The all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus had, had sent, sent the Prime Minister a letter pointing that exact thing out, but he, he never bothered replying. You know, the Prime Minister has an immense power at his fingertips, and he's used it when he's, you know, when he's been forced into it eventually. But there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't have made the same decision earlier. And you can see across the world there are leaders who were who were able to take those tough decisions. I mean, it just seems to be a lack of courage from him. He seems to have been unable to take the difficult decision to lock down until he was absolutely forced into it because the hospitals were literally being overwhelmed and people were dying without the care they need. And tragically, as a result of his prevarication, you know, we, we've, we, there's evidence in the book that thousands of people who should have had intensive care treatment didn't get it. There just weren't enough intensive care beds. And that's because of the unmanageable deluge of patients that his differing caused. What do you think the the a positive outcome from this book and from this investigation would be? What would you want to see happening? I mean, you, you mentioned an inquiry. What next? Yeah, I mean, there must there must be an inquiry. I mean, one of the, one of the things we've done is spoken a lot with the Bree families and the human rights lawyers that they've employed believe that Johnson may well be guilty of the criminal offence of gross negligence manslaughter. They point to a speech he made on the twenty seventh of April last year when he was. When he just returned from, from himself being Ill, Ill from the virus, I mean, he said that allowing infections to increase again would cause another human and economic disaster. So he knew the consequences of allowing a second wave, but he, he still did it. And so they say, look, you know, he knew what he was doing, but he still carried it out. Going back, though, though uh, George, to my question on, on politics and whether or not our politics are set up for this, you know, Boris Johnson and, and perhaps others around him are, are libertarians at heart. You know, the idea that they shut down an economy or they, the idea that they intervene in an economy in the way that they have does not 
sit well philosophically with them. So they've got quite a, a large philosophical hill to climb. Can you yield at all in terms of the political position where the administration were coming from? Well, I appreciate that it's, it's a tough thing lot, you know, to bring in a lockdown, but truth is, is that you just have to look at the other leaders around the world. You know, we, we, we came into this pandemic with ranked as the second, having the second best pandemic planning in the world. We've ended up with the worst FTOL in Europe and one of the world's worst recessions. So that, that, that just shows that the majority of other leaders around the world were able to be strong enough and, and recognize the fact that delaying the lockdown would only cause worse, a worse economic hit to the country in, in the long term. And that's the, the simple truth of it. So regardless of his instincts and his, you know, one of the things we write about in the book is, is his a very eminent scientist called Professor Stephen Riley, who, who's um, one of the government advisors, wrote a paper in that first week of March pointing that exact thing out. You know, if you delay lockdown and allow infections to rise and rise, then you have to have longer lockdowns to bring the thing back under control, which then means you have more economic damage and you have far more death. So it's, there's no upside to it. Mm-hmm. And to make that mistake three times, same as they haven't been warned and warned and warned by your own advisors, is just extraordinary. And um, it, it's, it's impossible to have any sympathy with that. So you've thought about the political and the scientific argument. I mean, is there a legal argument? And I, I note, and I have read the book, it, it's a great book, and I would recommend anyone read it, Failures of State, The Inside Story of Britain's Battle with the Coronavirus. There's no mention of Jonathan Sumption, and because Jonathan Sumption has quite a strong view on the sort of constitutional angle uh, of a lockdown, um, and actually the the legality of it. Did you think about contacting Jonathan? Well, one of the things that we did, we didn't contact Jonathan, but one of the things we did do was we spoke to the scientists who were espousing, I think, um, Jonathan's views, which were which were the. Scientists who, who signed us the Great Barrington Declaration, and we're, mm. we're of the view that we should be pursuing more of a kind of herd immunity approach. And in particular, there were three scientists who the government, uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, actually invited to a, a kind of Zoom call with them when they, they were in Downing Street, which was the days after Sage had recommended a circuit breaker in September. And it's clear that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak were desperately trying to find some scientists somewhere who would justify their desperation not to bring in, <laughs> bring in another lockdown. So they invited uh, Sunitra Gupta, who's a um, professor at Oxford University. Now, she'd had some quite, quite a checkered kind of history of the pandemic. So she, in March, she'd actually claimed that half of the British population had already been infected, and therefore there was a huge amount of herd immunity around. And uh, a few months later, she said that the virus was on its way out of the country. So she clearly kind of uh, had not been accurate of her predictions um, previously. They also invited uh, Angus Tegnell, who was um, Sweden's chief epidemiologist. And he, he'd been the architect of Sweden's um, uh, anti-lockdown approach. And the interesting thing about that is when you look in September at Sweden's outcomes, they've had they had multiple, multiple times of deaths compared to the Scandinavian neighbours and a worse economic outcome. So it was absolutely clear that the, the herd immunity approach had been discredited. And Sage had actually pointed out that by that period, we'd had 55,000 deaths, but only 6% of the population had uh, immunity. So the idea of us getting to 60% 
the death toll that we'd have to suffer to get to that point was clearly absolutely appalling. So the idea that the government and Boris Johnson and Sunak were, were entertaining these these ideas even at that late stage is, is quite extraordinary. And and, and I think um, the kind of anti-lockdown approach which Assumption, Assumption was espousing uh, was, would clearly leave us in, in, in the worst of all worlds. George, final question. This is something I ask um, everyone who comes on this podcast. Um, what advice would you give to the more junior journalists and maybe the, the graduates who are just coming, coming out of university um, who are looking to pursue a career in journalism? What advice would you give to them in terms of what they should be doing, the skills they need to be um, working on to become a good journalist? Maybe to undercut you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what yeah. <laughs> This is actually it. I mean, the key, absolute key is persistence, you know, because you, you get a lot of knockbacks in journalism in terms of you know, trying to get a job in the first instance, but also when you're working on a story and you're trying to make a breakthrough, it's that, that, the key thing is, is just to keep going and try and think of every possible angle you can think of to, uh, and, and means to, to make it work and um, get that break. I think also you, you need to be passionate about it because it's not, it's not a career to go into for, you know, for, for money. It's a career you have to you have to love, um, and so if you're not not committed to it, then it's probably worth looking at something that's that's better paid and and, and, and less competitive. Um, but if you are keen on it, it's it's the greatest, in my view, it's the greatest job there is because by definition, you are looking and and um, working on some of the most interesting things going on in the world at any one time. You know that that's that's your job, and so. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more stimulating and uh, rewarding than that. But yeah, it's getting tougher and tougher because of the um, as the resources get squeezed and squeezed. But um, I mean, I certainly with, with our our first story we did on the pandemic, which I mentioned earlier about the five COVID meetings, that story became the most popular online story in the, in the Times and Sunday Times history, and it got um, more than a thousand new subscriptions, which will will pay for our team. For a fair few years so you know that, that was incredibly encouraging because it showed that people were are willing to pay for invested journalism you know maybe maybe that there's a model there which will help sustain it and hopefully grow it in the coming years persistence and passion george about not thank you for joining me thanks doug thank you for listening to the why invest podcast with me doug barnett portfolio manager at waverton and our guest this week the multi-award-winning investigative journalist from the sunday times If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not subscribe to it or like it and let your friends know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.